Welcome to Retro Football Network podcast. I'm Gary Cook, and I'm happy to tell you we have got double figures on the board because we're at episode 10 now. I'm really grateful to you all, to everyone who listens, and if you like the podcast, it really helps if you're able to leave a five-star rating on the platform where you're listening to this. So wherever you are now, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are, if you can leave five stars, it gives me more opportunity to have the podcast found and discovered by people. I know you hear it a lot on podcasts, but it means a lot, especially to an independent like myself. Now, today's guest, he's one of, if not the best football commentator of the 21st century. He did start before then, but I'm talking about modern times. He has worked for major TV networks, both home and abroad, and he was a true gentleman when he came on the podcast. So let's give a huge welcome to John Champion. John, welcome to the Retro Football Network podcast. Thanks very much for being here today. No, thank you very much for inviting me on. I've got my big mug of tea here and I'm ready to go. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Now, for people who've listened to the previous episode, this is episode number 10. The previous nine episodes, people know what's coming first off because I ask the same question every time. Tell me, what are your earliest memories of football? Um well, I suppose my earliest memories of the sport of football are watching my dad, who was a, a housemaster in a, a small uh, private school in York, refereeing matches on a Saturday afternoon. So my mum would take me and my brother down. We actually lived on the site because he was a housemaster. We lived in the school, even though my brother and I didn't go there. So we would just wander down to the playing fields and watch him referee. He'd, he'd previously been a Southern League referee when he was uh, at university at Cambridge. Um, but then with his, his school teaching career, he just refereed on a Saturday. But despite his enthusiasm for that, uh, he and my mum were never very keen for me to go and watch my local team, York City. It was a time when football hooliganism was was rife and it wasn't deemed to be the safest thing to, to do. So as a sort of seven, eight, nine-year-old child, there was a reluctance to let me go. And it was galling for me because where we lived in York was about five minutes walk, a long goal kick away from Bootham Crescent. Oh, right, okay. Home, home ground. So on a Saturday afternoon, I could hear the crowd roaring and obviously going past our front door. Um, I could see hundreds, sometimes thousands of people all dressed in their scarves and in those days with their bobble hats and some still had the wooden rattles going <laughs> to the match. And I thought this is something I want to be part of. And instead, my parents were keener that I should be a musician. So I used to get sent oh. off orchestra practice on a Saturday morning for three hours to go and play the violin which was all very fine and dandy, but I think anyone can relate to the fact that if you're pressed into doing something, effectively forced to do it, especially by your parents, you don't want to do it. Exactly. So I was learning to go to the football, whereas I was being forced to go to orchestra practice. So eventually there was one particular Saturday, I think in about 1978, I was about 12 at the time, and I still hadn't been allowed to go to a game. And a friend of my parents came round, who was also a housemaster in the school. He came round for Saturday lunch. And I knew that he was an ardent York City fan. And I also knew that he was going to the match that wow. afternoon. So basically, I spent lunch making myself absolutely unbearable to my parents, <laughs> beseeching them to let me go to the game and trying to play the sort of unfairness card. And eventually, he said, oh, it's, I'll take you this afternoon. I thought, great, my plan has worked. And my parents agreed. So I was allowed to go. And my first professional game was between York City and Aldershot. Right. Um, Crescent. It was a 2-0 York win, which was a rarity in those days. The goal scorers were Peter Scott, a Northern Ireland international who previously played for Everton. He scored yeah. a penalty. And Gordon Staniforth, who went on to play in an FA Cup semi-final for Plymouth Argyle 
a nifty oh, winger. Uh, and in fact, his daughter, Lucy, ended up becoming an England women's international much more, more recently. So that was the first game that I saw. And what hooked me was being part of the, the swathe of people walking down Bootham, the road on which we lived, and then turning right down Bootham Crescent, where the ground was at the end, this sweep of uh, sort of 100-year-old red brick houses. And as we got closer to the ground, you could hear the noise emanating from within. And then we went through the gates and we were about to go to the turnstile to pay our money. And we walked past the back of the main stand and you could smell that peculiar liniments that players mm. used to rub into their, yeah. their limbs. Um, sort of Ralgex, really, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> Trey's name. Uh, but it was a smell that I'd not really come across before. And that, that hooked me. And then I could I could smell the, the burgers and the, the hot dogs. Yeah. And then... At half time, I was given a bovril, and um, and and I was completely sold on the whole thing. And just being part of this uh, passion play, really, in inside the ground, being part of a swaying ground. We stood on the Shipton Street end, which was right behind the goal. It was the the York's very small equivalent of the Cop, if you like, yeah. uh, or the Gallagate. And uh, and it was it was just magical. And to be that side of the wall as well, because I should also explain that my junior school was Shipton Street infant school right. and it, bordered, it bounded york city's ground so i had previously been in there on a regular basis in fact but only to get our ball back at playtime when we kicked it over <laughs> the wall to actually get within the bounds of the great citadel was was wonderful so that was that was my first experience of a professional football match were you able to continue going after that yes yeah i i, I cracked the code at that stage and yeah. before long i was enthusiastic enough to be using my pocket money to to buy a ticket with york pullman coaches to go on the away trips as, oh, as well really? travel up and down the length and breadth of the land watching watching york which was it was great quite a few of my school friends were doing it as well so we'd, we'd go as a group so we went all over the place i can remember trips to carlisle in the north and all the way down to to plymouth and torquay and exeter in the in the oh, southwest wow. and all points in between as well wow now, of course, um, York had a fantastic day back in 1985 in the FA Cup. Were you at that game against Arsenal? Do you know, I wasn't at the actual game. Um, oh. I wasn't because I'd started my local career, my local radio career by then. Right. Um, and the same day, my job was covering Scarborough. So I was working for Radio York, the BBC radio mm -hmm. station for North Yorkshire. And they, they covered York and they covered Scarborough, who at the time were in what is now the National League. It was called the Gola League. Yeah. Um, Neil Warnock was about to come and take over as as manager. He was the first manager I had to deal with on a, a regular basis all those years ago as a, a cub local radio reporter. Um, but Scarborough were playing at Dagenham, which was not mm -hmm. very glamorous. So I remember uh, having my headphones on and doing my reports from Dagenham against Scarborough, whilst uh, Keith Houchin was whacking in the penalty in stoppage time to create a very famous cup upset. Exactly. And then they played Liverpool next after that, didn't they? They did, and, and I was involved actually in that. So uh, I did commentate on the two Liverpool games oh. that followed it, and indeed the subsequent season when Liverpool uh, were York's opponents again. Um, so the first year they drew at Brewham Crescent and then lost heavily in the replay uh, at Anfield. The second year uh, they drew at Brewham Crescent on an ice-bound pitch, and then they took Liverpool to extra time uh, at Anfield. Uh, and it was one of those games that could have gone either way, and it was yeah. that's one of my my great memories of my early years of broadcasting. Really doing that again. That was that, those were my first trips to Anfield. Little did I I know that I'd be going there forty years later. Oh wow! Now, how did you get to this point then of working for your local BBC radio station? How did that begin? Uh, luck, Gary. Oh, right. No, <laughs> no planning. 
no planning at all. So, um, well, yeah, I, I, there was no master plan. I mean, you'll talk to a lot of my colleagues and they'll say, oh, I used to commentate on games on the television in the living room or I used to commentate on two flies crawling up the wall or whatever it might be. There was none of that with me. Um, I was pretty hopeless at school. My academic results were really poor and I sort of tumbled out of school at the age of 19, having to have to redo a year, the ultimate indignity really. Um, and, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I got myself a, a job at the British Lending Library at Boston Spa near Weatherby. Um, and the British Lending Library still is the place that people would go to if you're an academic at a, a university in um, the backyard of Australia and you're studying nuclear fission and you need a particular article from a particular magazine that was published eons ago, yeah. the British Lending Library is the place you go to. It's the, the ultimate source for academic research, even in the internet age, still a lot of stuff that hadn't been transferred onto the internet that was written years ago is, is stored there in this vast warehouse. So my job that I took uh, initially on a, a short-term basis was really to, I would receive these requests, uh, a letter from Professor Smithers in Tasmania saying, I need this article. It was published in this journal in 1953. I would then have to go to the shelves, find it physically, photocopy it and send it by post because there was no internet to send no. it by. Um, so that, that was my job and it was for the most part, mind-blowingly dull, but I was resolved <laughs> to do it for, for, for a year, I was going to um, earn enough money to go traveling, to buy myself a bit of time to think what I was going to do in life. And then one day during this period, when I was doing this job, I played in a cricket match. And it was the, the one sport that I could play to any sort of level, not a great level at all, but a, a reasonable level. And I played in this match one day and I retired to the clubhouse in York. And uh, after about four or five pints of Tetley's Yorkshire Bitter, the payphone in the corner of the clubhouse rang and it was the local radio station, Radio York, wanting to talk to me about the day's cricket and, and the part that I played in it. So fortified by these four or five pints of beer, <laughs> I answered the questions. It, it all went very um, amicably. And then I put the phone down, went and had a few more beers and went home and thought no more about it. And a couple of weeks later, there was a phone call at home from the sports editor of this newly established local radio station saying, um, we really thought you were very good um, answering these questions. You sounded very fluent. Well, Gary, you'd have sounded fluent if you'd drunk the amount of beer that I had that night. <laughs> they liked the sound of my voice and um, they were looking for a few people to report on a bit of rugby and cricket um, and also football that upcoming winter. Uh, and they wanted to know if I was interested. They stressed at the start there was no money in it, but it might be a bit of fun. Yeah. So with nothing better to do in my life and no clear direction, I decided I'd give it a go. And about six weeks later, there was another phone call, this time from the manager of the radio station to say, you're doing really well. It, you sound very natural doing this. Are you enjoying it? And so, of course, I, I replied that I was. It was great fun. And it didn't seem particularly difficult. Um, so they said, we think you've got a chance of making a career if you're interested. Wow. But the BBC will only take graduates at that stage. This was 1983, 1984. They only took graduates. And my academic results were so dreadful, I wasn't going to any big time university anytime soon. Right. So I managed to scramble onto a, a, a course at a Catholic teacher training college in a place called Horsforth on the outskirts of Leeds. And the course was communication and cultural studies with public media. And you needed sort of two E's in your A-levels to get on it. And I could just about scrape two E's. That was, that was okay. about it. So I wasn't surrounded by magnificent academics, but it just gave me a structure really. And the BBC resolved that they would give me matches to report on, on at weekends. And as long as I trained on, they would sort me out with a job. 
at the yeah. end of it. So I did this three-year course, and during that time, the BBC actually abandoned their principles of you've got to be a graduate and said, look, come and join us now. And I, I had a difficult decision to make, but said, no, I'm, I'm going to see this through, because if this broadcasting business doesn't work out, I need to have something that I can fall yeah, back Yeah, you've got on. a qualification at the end of it, haven't you? Yeah, so, um, so I did the full three years, and six weeks before my finals, there was a phone call in my digs, again on a payphone, <laughs> And I, I picked up the phone and it was a very prim and proper lady um, called Miss Jackson. Um, Hello, it's uh, Miss Jackson, Rosalind Jackson. She said, I'm calling from the British Broadcasting Corporation, Fulton Place, London, W1. <laughs> I said, Miss Jackson, it's, it's very nice to, to talk to you. Uh, to, to what do I owe the pleasure? She said, it's about the job. I said, the job. Yes, the job. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, Miss Jackson, you're going to have to enlighten me here. Has nobody spoken to you about the upcoming position at Leeds in local radio? I believe Leeds is in the north of the country somewhere. Um, <laughs> that's sort of call. I don't think she stepped outside London W1 very much. Anyway, she went on to say that there was a job for a sports reporter at BBC Radio Leeds. And um, we've booked you in for an interview. Friday, three o'clock. Don't forget to wear a tie. Now, Mr. Champion, these are the questions we'll be asking you at the interview board, and these are the answers we would like you to reproduce. <laughs> she, she, she then told me, A, what the interview questions were going to be, B, what the answers were that I needed to, to rattle out, and um, I got the job. Amazing. Wow. And they kept it open for six weeks whilst I finished my, my finals at, at college, and, um, and then I started work, and that was me up and away. That was 1988 by that stage. Right. So then working for Radio Leeds, mm. were you, BBC Radio Leeds, were you covering Leeds United or were you covering other teams in West Yorkshire? Or? Well, they had four teams. So Leeds, uh, Bradford City, Huddersfield yeah. Town and Halifax Town, uh, yeah. all in the Football League at that stage. But uh, Leeds was the big gig and I was lucky enough to do a fair bit of, of Leeds United. So the first manager I had to deal with there was Billy Bremner. Mm. Um, and he was he was a lovely man, but he was a little bit sort of rough around the edges and not particularly attuned to the requirements of broadcasters and, and actually strangely nervous when faced by a microphone. So you would go into his office at Elland Road after training on a Friday for the weekly local radio interview and you would sit on his sofa and his sofa was uh, was made of leather. Yeah. I mean, very comfortable to sit on. But the problem was that Billy could never sit still. And he wore shorts that created a certain friction with the leather <laughs> nervous. He was always moving around during the course of the interview. So you'd get it back to Radio Leeds to edit, and it just sounded like he'd been breaking wind for half an hour. <laughs> Very unfortunate. But but it was a thrill to, to meet and, and work with him at an early stage of the career. And then before too long, um, he'd been replaced by Howard Wilkinson. And then yeah. the, you know, a couple of years later, after I'd left Radio Leeds, they were, they were winning the league title. Um, That's right. And my, my sort of preparation for dealing with managers, though, I did refer briefly earlier. That time when I was at college, I continued working largely with Radio York, and they gave me Scarborough and York City to cover. So Scarborough were taken by storm by this chiropodist from Sheffield called Neil Warnock, yeah. who had previously been the manager of Gainsborough Trinity and Burton Albion, and had made a few waves. But uh, he turned up as the manager of Scarborough when they were struggling in the Gola League, as it, as it then was, and getting 500 through the gate. And a year and a bit later, he turned them into the first side ever to earn automatic promotion to the Football League. And they celebrated their debut with a game against Wolves at the, they did, yeah. the, uh, the McCain Stadium. That was the sponsor's name, the Athletic Ground on Seymour Road in Scarborough. A game that's mainly remembered 
for a Wolves fan that climbed up onto the roof of the stand and the roof gave way and he fell through right. 30 odd feet onto the concrete and thank thankfully um against all odds survived that's so right that's the abiding image it's still there on youtube yeah i remember it really well yeah i think was it two two, yeah, two, two. it was two two yeah goodness me you've got a good memory <laughs> it's just one of those games i remember certain bits about scarborough i remember them i think they beat chelsea as well in the league cup i think mm. yes um, they had a great cup fighting tradition i mean pre-me uh, they'd won the fa trophy two or three times mm. but they had some great cup experience as well up on the on the Yorkshire coast and it's I think just a slight tangent but it's so heartwarming to see Scarborough Athletic reformed out of the ashes of the old club doing so well and now actually in a position where in the not too distant future they could be back in the National League yeah yeah because of course they had that really cruel relegation in 99 with Jimmy Glass scoring for Carlisle yes. and everything yeah. like that and they were on the ball on the pitch and they thought they were safe etc so yeah they they went down in really cruel fashion as well didn't they so they did yes now from working at Leeds mm. did that take you then down to London afterwards was that your direct route it, it was I did 18 months at Radio Leeds and then I was fortunate enough to be offered a chance to join the magnificent radio sports team national radio uh at Broadcasting House so I was close to Miss Jackson I never did, met Miss Jackson summon you to London <laughs> or I Gary I don't think sport was a strong point so I, I <laughs> doubt she was even aware of my arrival in the capital um so i went and uh yes december 1989 i started work uh new year's eve um and for the first week uh first month i was just watching other people so i walked into the sports room which was the office on the third floor of broadcasting house and at one desk in one corner was peter jones the wonderful radio commentator his colleague brian butler was at the next door desk peter bromley the voice of racing was at a, a further yeah. desk ian robertson who did the rugby christopher martin jenkins who did the cricket just stellar broadcasters in all directions so unsurprisingly i wasn't allowed near a microphone for the first month i was just right. installed and told to sit watch and learn which i i tried to do and then eventually all the sport was on radio two in those days radio five live was just in the the minds of executives and planners at that point um eventually i was allowed to go on and do a few early morning sports desks and um i used to have to read the sport on the derek jameson show Oh, on radio too i've not heard for a long time yeah. if you, anyone that remembers derek jameson would remember that he was how can i describe him uh the person that I, he always reminded me of of was that barry humphrey's character celeste Patterson, Patterson, yeah. australian cultural attache in that he was always fairly disheveled i mean he's a lovely man derek jameson former newspaper editor of, of great repute at the time but the other thing was that when you were doing the breakfast shift with him in his studio he'd be spinning the discs and everything as you do on radio too and then he would um he would introduce the sport once an hour and he would eat his breakfast at the same time so he would have delivered from the bbc canteen on the top floor a tray with the most enormous english cooked breakfast you know rasher after rasher of bacon um oceans of baked beans and um scrambled egg was, was his other great thing and mushrooms as well and he was a messy eater and he also had the most horrible teeth which were at all angles and so there were gaps in the teeth into which bits of this breakfast would lodge so my main memory of working with derek jameson was the first day when i hadn't experienced this before where i went in and he he was playing a record at the time um and so we we introduced each other and he was he was very welcoming and pleasant and then the red light came on and he said uh, we've got a new name doing the sport today so here with the sport is john champion and unfortunately the the way that he said sport dislodged a large piece of bacon 
that had been stuck between his two front teeth. And I can still see it now. <laughs> just a parabolic shape spinning towards me and landing squarely in the middle of my white piece of paper that was my script. And oh, I had to try and keep my composure in in the midst of, of that. So it's strange what you remember, isn't it? But, you know, happy days. So you've got that point. You're doing these sports bulletins, etc. How did you get into the live commentaries? Well, first of all, I was very fortunate in that I arrived, as I said, uh, New Year's Eve uh, 1989. And by March of 1990, I'd, I'd been promoted well beyond my station to be uh, presenting Sport on Two, the Saturday afternoon programme. Mm -hmm. I'd arrived sort of with a good reputation from local radio, but I was 24 at the time. And suddenly I found myself, John Inverdale was the main presenter mm -hmm. and he was away doing a couple of things. So I made my debut uh, in March of 1990, uh, presenting that program that I'd always grown up listening to. And, you know, the thing that I had my uh, had my attention coming out of Booth and Crescent or any other football ground was a transistor radio glued to my ear at five o'clock for Sports Report, the famous yeah. music and the, the classified football results with James Alexander Gordon. And suddenly I was presenting it. And it's... Um, it's quite a sad tale in that my first show that I presented was the University Boat Race of March 1990. And I arrived at Broadcasting House very early, very nervous. And as I was going in through the marble halls past the statue of John Reith, the founder, out was coming Peter Jones, who I'd got to know over the previous three or four months. And he was a very well-read man, as you would imagine, mm -hmm. from his broadcasting style, Peter Jones. And he had a pile of books beneath his arm and he was on his way down to the Thames to commentate on the university boat race and we stopped and exchanged a few words and he wished me well because he knew it was a, a big day for me um, but the sad outcome of that day is that I handed over to the university boat race and he and Dan Topolsky famous rowing figure were on the launch behind the two crews and that was the day that tragically Peter who just retired from the staff of the BBC at the age of 60 and become freelance had a huge heart attack and we heard his voice falter in the middle of the commentary and then fade away. And this Dan Topolsky, his expert, took over the commentary. And we knew that something was very seriously wrong. And, and because they were in the middle of the Thames and in the middle of the boat race, they couldn't get Peter to shore anytime soon. So they worked on him as best they could. Um, and I think he was still alive when um, they got him to the banks and they got into hospital. We knew the news was going to be grim. Um, but yes, we, we had to deal with that. Um, and uh, his death actually wasn't announced until the Monday morning, two days afterwards. But uh, I just remember going back up to the sports room after the programme at six o'clock at the end of Sports Report, and the phones were ringing off the hook with yeah. newspapers, um, other broadcasting organisations wanting news, a condition check to, to see how the great man was. And of course, we knew at that stage that the news was going to be the worst and very grim although we didn't have official confirmation of it. And we all went off to the, the BBC club for the traditional drink afters, and we just sat there in silence. And I was um, I was going back up to York that night, and I remember walking to King's Cross Station to get the train, and the poll tax riots were on at that time, and there were police sirens going. It was surreal, and it was horrible. And then the worst news was confirmed on the Monday. And, oh, and uh, by... By coincidence, I was scheduled to be presenting the, the main sports desk of the day, which was the 6.45 sports desk. It's right. the John Dunn show on Radio 2. I told you they were different days. And um, and Peter's death had been announced that afternoon. And his great friend was Cliff Morgan, 
the Welsh yeah. rugby player. He used to present Sport on Four on a Saturday morning on Radio Four, and it was decided that he should be the man to do the tribute to mm. to Peter. And so I, I spoke to Cliff, who was in floods of tears, um, a very emotional man anyway, and um, we talked about how we were going to do this, and it was decided that he would do his tribute live. Um, so at 6.45, I went on air um, from John Dunn's queue and said, um, you know, good evening. Um, today's sports news dominated by the loss of one of the great broadcaster, broadcasters of, of this era. Um, and uh, here to pay tribute to him is Cliff Morgan. And Cliff was sitting opposite me in this tiny studio. Um, he didn't have a note in front oh, of him. Yeah. And he had tears pouring down his face. And he produced five minutes of the most magnificent prose in tribute to his his great friend. It was a broadcasting tour de force in the saddest of circumstances. Yeah, of but, um, yeah that was that was my sort of, I suppose, breakthrough weekend at, at Radio Sport in that I was given, I was entrusted with this program, but it was in the most awful of, of circumstances. Um, and, and quite rightly, that that weekend is remembered for anything other than me doing that program for the for the first time. But that was just a that was a diversion. We've got time for the odd diversion, I think, Gary, today. But well, yeah. did you actually ask me about live sport and commentating? And that was always my ambition when I went down there. I was channeled towards presenting initially, and I was very lucky to do sport on two. And they gave me my own program, Champion Sport, when Radio 5 started. And I within months I was off to the World Cup in Italy as the the, the presenter of the uh, the football coverage. That was that was a wonderful experience. Um, but I had really enjoyed being a commentator in local radio and actually being at the events all the time and um, just having the luxury of painting the pictures with words yes. and describing what you see in front of you um, for the listeners. And so I was always keen to commentate. But if you think that number one commentator to start that season before what we just talked about was Peter Jones, mm -hmm. number two was Brian Butler, number three was Mike Ingham, Alan Green was there on the similar sort of level. Then you had people like Ron Jones as yes. well in the mix. I wasn't going to get, get any games anytime soon. So I had to wait about two years. And in early 1992, Swindon were playing Aston Villa in the FA Cup fifth round at the county ground in front of a full house. And I was scheduled to present the coverage from London on the Sunday afternoon. Uh, and Mike Ingham went down ill the night before. And the only person they could get hold of to get to Swindon and do the game was me. So... I went with no preparation, but yes. was very fortunate in that my summariser was Martin O'Neill that day. Ah, okay. And anyone that's worked with or listened to Martin for any length of time will know that the main commentator doesn't need to do much preparation because <laughs> Martin will do most of the talking. And he did, and we got through it, and people seemed to like it. And from there, I got more commentary opportunities. And in about 1993, I was given the opportunity to make a choice between going further down the presentation route or being out on the road. And it wasn't really a decision. It was uh, in, in an instant, I said, I want to be out on the road. And from that point on, really, I was up and down the motorways and off to Europe to do games. And that, that's that been the story most of the time since. So really, at that point, I mean, commentary was in your blood already, wasn't it? Because a lot of people would have probably gone for the presentation thing because they think, if I can present, maybe I'll end up having my own show on TV or match of the day. Other people would look at it the other way. Well, as you obviously had been just got that bug for commentating, and yeah, I did, I did, because I, th I, I really, I really think, and I'm biased, but I really think that, especially a radio commentator, it's the ultimate luxury in broadcasting because you've got time, you've got space, and you've got a constantly changing scene to to describe. So it's a bit like an artist with a blank canvas mm. and his palette of paints, and you can paint the picture in whatever style you wish. It can be impressionistic if you want. 
Um, and where else in broadcasting do you have that luxury? And in football, it's so fast moving that maybe you can't always take full advantage as opposed to, say, cricket. Yeah. If you think of the work of John Arlett over the years and Aggers yeah. more recently, the pictures that they can paint are magnificent, but they've got a bit more time and space to do it. In football, it's a bit more rat-a-tat-tat. But even so, there's still the opportunity. So for me, it was no contest. I mean, why, why would you want to sit in a studio or a bunker for day after day, hour after hour, maybe month after month, season after season, when you can be out traveling the world on someone else's dime and, yeah. uh, and having so many different experiences? And also, as you said, with working with Martin O'Neill, you've worked with lots of different ex-players and managers as well yeah. who've been your co-commentators as well yes. now you talked about painting pictures just talking to you john as well you can see that that's natural for you Talk going back to talking about being a child going to york city you painted the picture of walking to, to the ground to booth and crescent and the sights and the smells you did the same there with other examples so you're obviously natural at painting the picture anyway so well, it's, it's strange, Gary, because I suppose that served me very well in the early years of my career. But of course, yeah. once you get to television, there's no real room for that. I mean, yes, you yeah. need a decent vocabulary, but you're not describing things because 25 cameras around the pitch are doing that for you. So it's it's a very, very different approach once you do TV. So I don't I think I probably find it more difficult to be as descriptive as I used to be on the radio now because I've not had to do it with any regularity for an awfully long time. In fact, Becoming a television commentator is like putting a straitjacket on in many ways, in that you use about a tenth of the language um, and you've just got to learn the discipline of making sure that every word you do utter counts. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think, be brave enough not to say anything a lot of the time. Was it com before you went to TV when you were still at radio? Was it competitive with so many big names like you talked about there, Alan Green and Mike Ingham, etc.? Was it quite competitive to try and get the big games or was it an accepted pecking order? It was pretty much an accepted pecking order. And that pecking order extended as well to, if you remember, they used to have two commentators mm. and a co-commentator. So you would only do either the first half of the first half or the second half of the second half. And doing yes. the second portion of each half was the senior yes. commentator's job. So there was there was sometimes a little bit of friction about that. Um, and, and of course, you had instances where two commentators might be perceived to be on the same level. So then who does it? And then I think right. motors then probably came into play, I suspect. But that was never something that really concerned me because I was always the junior one. So yeah. I was always kicking kicking things off in, in both halves. Um, but yes, I mean, I think the, the accepted um, pecking order was after the sad demise of Peter Jones and the retirement of Brian Butler, it would have been um, Metas Green and Ingham together. And then probably Ron Jones would be would be next after that. And then the, the sort of office juniors like myself and um, just after me, Peter Drury, um, who else was coming through at that stage? Rob Hawthorne, obviously, was was a big part of things at, at that stage as well. Simon Brotherton. Um, I mean, it, it proved to be a really good staging post for an awful an awful lot of us. And it didn't, I should emphasize, it didn't have to be a staging post. It would have been a very good end destination for an entire yeah. career. It's just that other opportunities came up. And I've always been adventurous enough to think, I, yeah, I'll try something different. What were, when you were on the radio, then, what were some of your favourite matches that you covered? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, so many. Lots of great cup ties, uh, great cup upsets. Um, I, I think um, FA Cup finals. Um, I remember lots of, lots of quirky things, really. I mean... I, there were lots of, of matches where 
the result will be remembered for years to come. But just incidents um, and moments or something that a co-commentator said, things that wouldn't perhaps resonate with, with the wider listening public. But if I was to pick out one thing that I did on the radio that served me well, and I suppose is still played to this day, it would be being the radio commentator for Radio 5 Live at Selhurst Park the night that Cantona jumped into the crowd because that's actually what got me my television break. So at the time, John Motson was being given a sabbatical, a, a year off from BBC television after many years of, of service. So he was sort of on paid leave and they needed a young commentator to come in and, and fill the gaps on the rotor. Barry Davis was still there and Tony Gubber, Gerald Sinstad, but they needed a younger man to come in. And um, Jonathan Martin, the long-serving head of television sport at the BBC was in his bath at home listening to the radio commentary of uh, Palace Manchester United because it wasn't live on the television. No, it wasn't, no. And heard me describing Cantona jumping over the perimeter fence and planting his studs into the chest of Matthew Simmons um, and uh, and liked it enough to think we'll give this young chap a, a go. So off the back of that, I got a year's trial uh, with match of the day in, in yeah. John Watson's temporary absence. So that was covering the 95-96 season then? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. was good. Quite a dramatic one with Newcastle and Manchester United fighting for the title, etc. as well. It so. was, and, and yes, I mean, Newcastle at that time were magnificent to watch. I mean, I covered them quite a bit on, on the radio. I remember remember being at Grimsby, Blundell Park, the night that Keegan's Newcastle got promoted in front of a crowd that I think historically is listed at sort of 11,000, but felt more like 30, most of them Geordie. Uh, that was a chaotic night, but a wonderful one. Um, and, and then covering Newcastle in those days, uh, it was there were two treats actually i i used to feel one was going to st james's park just because of the environment and the wonderful swashbuckling football mm -hmm. that newcastle were playing and the other strangely at the time was going to the dell to watch southampton because you would go week after week and every week matthew letissier would score a goal of the season contender and yeah. and you could you you could bet on it happening it was extraordinary when you look back on it so again going to the dell every week is not something that most people would pick out as one of the highlights of their football watching of the 1990s but personally for me it was and also as well it's such a unique place in terms of the ground the way the stands mm. were odds and not even even when you look at the tiny nets the goal nets were really really tiny and uh it was it was great and uh, you know many of my happier times were spent at grounds that no longer exist you know, i remember doing many games at oxford at the manor ground and it's you know i think the number of stands around the pitch actually ran into double figures at the manor ground and um and doing cup ties there i remember adrian heath scoring a goal that kept howard kendall in a job for everton in a, in a league cup tie late on in a game against a very good Ox oxford team and everton then of course went on to win two league titles and the the cup winners cup under under Howard Kendall, but the old grounds were such magnificent places. Roker Park, loved doing mm -hmm. games there, although it was the coldest place you could believe because you, your commentary position was on top of the stand opposite the main stand, on top of the old barrel roof, and behind you was the North Sea. Yeah. There was nothing to protect you at all. Ayrson Park was, was similar. And in fact, I was reminded of this earlier this week. I, I had a very kind invitation to go to Goodison uh, to be what they call a lounge guest, just to tell a few stories to the, the corporates. And um, and I sat there in my seat, um, and for once I was able to take it all in, rather being, than being up on the gantry and concentrating on the game, and just looking at the scene and the magnificent crisscross of the Archibald Leach mm -hmm. design that was prevalent at so many of the grounds. I mean, Roker Park, Ibrox still has some of it, but there were so many others. And thinking that in 18 months' time, the bulldozers are going to be moving into this place. And you think that's where Eusebio scored 
four goals in a, a memorable um, World Cup game. North Korea nearly created the shock of all time. World Cup semi-final happened there. All the great Everton teams down the years, all the things that have happened there. And that's just going to be erased. And earlier in the day, I'd been for a drive down to Bramley Moor Dock, the new stadium, which I'm sure will be magnificent in its own way. And it looks like a spaceship even now, even though it's far from finished. But it won't have the history. It won't have the stories. It won't have that feeling of permanence about it that you get when you walk through the gates of a place like Goodison Park. And I fear that Goodison probably is the last of the great old, relatively untouched grounds. Yeah, it's true. I, th I think you're right. It's a place I've been to myself. And it's a place that always had, when it's a night match, I mean, obviously played on Monday night, the atmosphere wasn't so good, what, what bit I saw. But to be mm. honest, normally a night match, is, it's got a real feeling about it at Goodison Park. It has. And lots of other grounds have got a real feeling about it, but they're a different feeling because yeah. you could talk about Anfield. And Anfield clearly is a magnificent stadium, but it's changed so much over the years that the Anfield we experience is not the Anfield of... 50 years ago, whereas the Goodison that we experience now is the Goodison pretty much of 80, 90 years ago. And that's yeah. what I love about it. Yeah, it's true. It will be, I understand why they need to do it, but yeah, it's a sad, I think it's because it's like, as you talked about, for us, football, it's nostalgia, it's the history. For the modern fan, they just want, obviously, the comfort and a brand new shiny thing to go and visit every week or every yeah it's a, it's a very different approach isn't it and also i don't think we could overlook the fact that there is so much foreign ownership now of premier league teams and having just come back from living in america for five years and working there where you gradually understand that even in sport the dollar is everything mm. and how much money you can bring in you know sp sports teams in this country generally the, the genesis of them was they were there as a part of the community to entertain local people, to allow local people to play. If you have a sports franchise, desperately horrible word in, yeah. in America, all of them were set up with the prime purpose of making money. Yes. And if that attitude has permeated our game, which it clearly has now as well, then we shouldn't be surprised that the, the chase is on for the, the stadium that's going to maximise revenue. Yeah, you made a good point there about the word franchise. I was in America in 99 and we were in Minnesota and we were, yeah. my friend was out there coaching football and he was staying with the family and they invited us around for dinner. So we were there and they were watching them. It was a Stanley Cup, I think. And they were cheering on this ice hockey team. And I said, what? They were from, I think it was San Antonio or something like that, somebody from Texas. And they were saying, oh yeah, great. We love this team. I said, well, is there not a, a local team that you prefer or support? He said, this is our local team. They just moved from Minnesota to, I said, well, wait a minute, Minnesota's up here. <laughs> he said, yeah, they just moved the franchise. And I just thought, oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So he used to go, this bloke, who ironically, his name was Pat Rice, but it wasn't him. <laughs> he he was saying that, yeah, it was crazy that they used to go and watch the games. And then, of course, they moved, I don't know how many miles, thousands of miles yes. out to Texas. Yeah. yeah. And it's accepted practice there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't in any way um, condemn it because it's the way that American sports works yeah. and, it, and it works for them. But it's just so alien to particularly to those of us of our sort of generation yeah. that are just about old enough to remember the days when the club was owned by the local butcher or baker. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and we don't want um, I fear it will happen at one point. I mean, we've seen it with MK Dons, but it could happen in the future because of ownership and then a new generation of supporters were just saying okay well no problem because yeah. as you said the community part of the football that attracted people in the first place is not the same 
clubs have got fans all over the world now who rely on TV to watch the games. Yes. So they don't, they're not interested if the club plays in east, north, west or south of the country. So they're not bothered. No, uh, but none of us should forget that the strength of English football is the pyramid. Yeah. And, you know, the, the glitzy football of the top 20 teams who happen to be at the Premier League level at any one time is, is all well and good. And it's a great selling point for our wonderful game here. But they wouldn't be what they are without the clubs in National League North and the Southern League and the Isthmian League and all the way down the, the structure, which is why, to me, it's so important that we protect things like the FA Cup and the means yeah. of redistributing wealth and giving those smaller teams, and I mean that in a nice way rather than a sort of condescending way, but the clubs yeah. that exist for a money-spinning FA Cup tie uh, once every 20 years, we've got to give yeah. them hope still, maintain that. Otherwise, what are they playing for? Exactly, exactly. And it's also for the supporters who go, it's just they can just hold on to that little dream of something can happen, mm. something absolutely magical could happen. I mean, if you look back, I mean, I've, I've covered stuff because I, I write every week articles myself for my own um, site. And I went back 20, 30 years and I covered teams like Burnley and Brighton and where they were, Wigan. They were in the bottom three of the fourth division facing relegation to non-league and then you look at where these teams ended up okay i know wigan have had hard times recently but they won the fa cup yes and burnley of course became under sean dash a, a fixture in the premier league for many years brighton doing great work brighton was so close to dropping out of the league swansea another one of course i know they're in the championship now but they had they had great days when michael loudrup won in the league cup Yes. They were so close to extinction as well. Yeah. So and you, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely, Gary. And you look at the current Premier League, and I was at Luton on um, Sunday yeah. for the game against Manchester United. If you wind back 10 years to the previous weekend of 2014, they were also playing United, but it was Hereford United in the fifth tier. And since then, they've had the most remarkable climb. This weekend, I'm going to Bournemouth. Mm -hmm. Another one, yeah. Well, they are in their seventh season in the Premier League, which is amazing because Bournemouth were always, to people older than me, Division Three South, and to me, Division Three and Division Four. Yeah. You know, three and seven, mm -hmm. and they're having a good season. So what they've done is is extraordinary, and I, I think the the risk with certainly with the American closed shop ownership model is that at some stage the drawbridge gets pulled up and mm. the Premier League does become a closed shop. Yeah. Um, and that would that would be awful because that then removes hope and dreams for 98% of the football clubs up and down the country. Another one as well is Brentford, of course, because Brentford mm. were similar things. Brentford always seemed like a, a third division team. And then, of course, they just dropped into this business model and it's just been hugely successful for them. Yeah. So. Sadly, they've left those four pubs behind there, haven't they, on either corner? Of oh, the yeah. <laughs> oh. Another one, yeah, with Griffin Park, yeah. Yes. And a great name as well, Griffin Park. It's just yes. a great name for a football stadium as well. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to talk about, of course, when you were working with the BBC covering live football, you had the, the news in the, the new century, the 21st century, that ITV then had the rights and there was going to be no more match of the day. Mm. That must have been a huge blow for, for everyone. It was, because it wasn't particularly expected. We were out at Euro 2000. Um, I was sitting in a, a hotel with John Motson when the news came through and Motty had been desperately trying to find out what was going on. I remember he'd been on the phone to Peter Ridsdale, who was then the chairman of Leeds, saying, Peter, come on, tip me off. What's happening? And, and Peter was ultra professional and said, no, I can't tell you. 
But um, yeah, then the news broke and it was, I mean, for people like John Motson and Barry Davis, um, it wasn't so serious because the BBC were always going to have some football. They, they actually got the FA Cup at, at that stage. But it wasn't going to be enough to keep someone like me satisfied. And so the BBC said to me, because the agreement had always been that as long as I trained on, I ultimately, um, when John Motson stepped aside, um, as long as as long as I'd sort of met the standards that they wanted, that there would be an opportunity for me to take on that that role. So I then had to weigh up, do I stay with the BBC? And I, I could have done that, but I'd have been commentating on Tiddlywinks for at least three years. And there was no guarantee they were going to get match of the day back. It's very easy to look back and say, yeah. well, I've had it ever since, but we didn't know that at the time. And also um, a chap called Brian Barwick, who... Mm -hmm been the head of sport and had been instrumental in giving me my job at match of the day had moved to ITV and taken Desmond Lynham with him um and there was a chance not just to do their version of match of the day but also the Champions League which was a a big attraction um yeah. and they threw in things like rugby world cups as well so I again it comes back to what I said earlier about I've never been afraid to take a tough decision and maybe seek something a little bit new um so that's what I decided to do so in 2001 Mm -hmm. um, I moved across the, the great divide to the grubby commercial world, but it, it was great, actually. I mean, they, they still are a fantastic group of people at ITV Sports because they have to produce um, sports coverage, which, you know, you're at a natural disadvantage if there are adverts. Yeah. When you go head to head, it's no surprise that they get hammered by the BBC. But if you look at the quality of their output and comparatively the lack of resources to do it because everything has to be accounted for financially, they they do a really terrific job, I think, and um, and it's also a department that's populated by really good people. Yeah, because that's the thing, as you said, because of the the commercial side of it. I mean, famously, they've had situations before where they've covered matches, because they had, they had in the late eighties they had the rights as well, and match of mm. the day only covered FA Cup. They just I think it was eighty eight, eighty nine. It became the match, etc. So ITV had the monopoly then until the Premier League began, and there were times where something happened in a game i think even when arsenal won famously at anfield in 89 i think they cut to an advert or the news because they had to they had all these rules and restrictions that they had to adhere to and the problem was people wanted to see that arsenal celebrate etc but of they course. couldn't and i think it was the same in 91 in the cup winners cup final when manchester united beat barcelona i think they had to cut to an advert Brian Robson probably just lifted the cup, but we didn't see much more because they had to finish. So they were yeah. restricted a lot, whereas the BBC seemed to have more more leeway as well. And they just well, went they, across the bottom to say that the news will follow this programme or something like that. And that's, that's a luxury that the BBC has. And, and I, you know, I don't begrudge them that. And I was obviously part of that for a long time and enjoyed being part of it. Um, but we were always under, we were under no illusions at ITV as to who ultimately paid our salaries. And those those were the people advertising soap powder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and of course they had. I remember there was some strange. There was a sponsorship. With, it was the Premiership, the program, wasn't it? Mm. Their version of the matches of the day, and there was some bizarre advert or brand sponsoring. I can't remember what it was. Somebody will probably be shouting now as they say. It. There was some weird cartoon style advertising for that as well. So yeah, they had no choice to do it because at the time. They started to do everything. Cadbury's sponsored Coronation Street and things like that. They had to do it. So they yes. were even sponsoring individual programmes as well. Now, you talked about the Champions League then. Was that a big thrill then for you personally to be able to comment on that? Yes. Yeah, it was great. Um, 
because the Champions League was sort of taking a proper shape by then mm. as well. We we had a couple of seasons where we had you know extra group stages and things, and then it mm. settled down again into I suppose a shape that's recognisable now. It won't be recognisable next season when we mm. have the so-called Swiss model and and uh, and and more games. Um, but it was it, it was fantastic because uh, for the first time it opened the door to regular visits to the great cathedrals of European football for me, and uh, and and I love that and the different cultures that you. You mix with and obviously you get to meet the, your counterparts in all the other countries as well who have largely similar stories to tell to to my own with from their careers so it was just a very nice extra dimension to to my working life what were some of your early memories of the champions league then when you were um, again um my main the first thing that occurs to me is actually being in mallorca and i don't i don't want to come across as sort of some merchant of tragedy but being in mallorca to do an arsenal game I think it was the first one that I did for ITV, having signed for them. And it was the day of 9-11. Oh, right, yeah. So I sat with Jim Beglin, who was my co-commentator, in a cafe in Mallorca, watching these stunningly awful pictures mm. of the Twin Towers coming down and thinking, well, there's no way that UEFA are going to allow this game to be played tonight. But they did. Mm. That was that was odd. I think it was, I mean, clearly the wrong decision in those circumstances did they, cancel, did they cancel the wednesday games the next day the the, the the games on the day which was a tuesday wasn't it they went ahead yes. and the wednesday they cancelled i think or postponed yes absolutely that's that's precisely what happened and of course we were left with the problem that um there was all sorts of clampdowns on air travel mm. so we struggled to get back from from mallorca um because for a few days it was um it was difficult to to travel by by air so so that would be one of my one of my main Champions League memories, actually, actually that, but also, you know, Milan derbies, Madrid derbies that happened to mm. fall within the, the Champions League and um, and just occasions where, you know, English sides would go and, and get a stunning result in one of those great, yeah. great grounds. So uh, it peppered really with with moments like that. And it wasn't just the Champions League, actually. It was the UEFA Cup and the Europa League provided some great moments. So when I look at the, at the Europa League, I'll, I'll, I'll pick out, um, three moments, two of them involving Middlesbrough, the season that they okay. went all the way in that competition under Steve McLaren, where on two occasions they found themselves needing in a second leg at the Riverside to score four goals mm. to go through, most notably in the semi-final against Star Bucharest, and they did it. Massimo yeah. Macaroni, an Italian striker, scored the, the clinching goal. So that's one memory that European football throws up. And the other one is I think I was privileged to see the finest goal ever scored at Craven Cottage which was another situation where Fulham were playing Juventus. Mm, I remember well, that, yeah. Juventus. And they found themselves needing to score four. And they did it. And the crowning glory was the most magnificent chip by an American called Clint Dempsey. Yep. And uh, it was one of those time-stood-still moments. There's the ball arced through the night air. And um, that, that was a really, really special day. And that's something that's always appealed to me. Um, being at a club on one of the biggest days in their history. So whilst yeah. it's always a thrill to go to AC Milan or Real Madrid, they've had so many great days. Yeah. But to be part of uh, a witness, I suppose, to writing uh, an important footnote in a club's history, actually being mm. there, is such a privilege. And it's happened many times in the FA Cup. And I suppose that's why things like Dempsey's goal for Fulham and Macaroni's for Middlesbrough yeah. watch with me as well. It just appeals to the sort of romantic in me. No, I can understand that. Yeah, as you said, if you go to Madrid, they've seen it all before. It's yeah, it's great if they win a semi-final, but they've been there that many times. The same as you said for AC Milan, places like that. But Fulham, I mean, that was a, I mean, 
it's rare now that English supporters will cheer on an English club in Europe now mm. because of the rivalries. But I think with the case of teams like Fulham, you wanted them to be Athletic Atletico Madrid in the final, etc., because it was such a, a great story. And I've seen that goal you're talking about, I think, on YouTube years ago with American commentary of that Clint Dempsey goal, which was something to you had to listen to it because you can imagine the reaction. It was their own star scoring the goal, and the commentator was going crazy because he was just so proud that one of the big name stars had scored the goal that had taken Fulham to this uh, European final. And as you said, that was Middlesbrough, great story for them as well, because did they do it again? Was it Basel? Did they do it as well? Basel, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as well. So nobody expected that at all. And then for them to get to the final, as you said, and these are, these are things that people still talk about today. I mean, for all, you were on about Everton earlier, for all Everton's glory of winning the, the league twice in that period, so many of them go back and talk about when they beat Bayern Munich mm. in the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup as being like one of the best nights ever, despite the fact that they went and won the final. They talk more about the semi-final second leg than the final, and it's just yeah. things like that. Yeah, I'll give you one other. That's Newcastle. Whenever I go to Newcastle, Newcastle fans talk to me about a game against Feyenoord mm. at a stage where there were two two group stages in the Champions League and they'd lost their first three games in the second group stage out of their six fixtures and had to win their last three to give themselves any chance and they went behind against Feyenoord at the Calp, and eventually they roared back and they won it 3-2 with a, a scramble goal by Craig Bellamy and um, as I shouted Bellamy it was such an emotional night my voice broke it sounded, it sounded like it was a sort of falsetto um, as if a delicate part of my anatomy had been clamped and um, it, it not something I look back on it with great professional pride, but it certainly resonated yeah. um, with the with the supporters. And, and again, that was that was one of Newcastle's special nights in a European context, at least. Yeah. Do you ever get people come to you then and say, oh, I loved your commentary on this or your voice is synonymous with a certain moment? Do you get that happen? Well, you some, sometimes you, you do. People are kind enough to come up and, and say something. But of course, most people don't know what I look like. So why would they know it's me? And, and I, I, I quite like it that way. Um, but yes, people are, people are kind enough to, to to do that from time to time, and it, it's it's a nice feeling to think that you you've played a small part in their enjoyment, hopefully, of um, one of the 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 pinnacle points of their football watching lives. Really. Now, this is going to only go out as an audio and not as a video, but so people can't see what I can see. Uh, behind you I just want to we talked about this off air before we began just tell everybody what have you got on your shelves behind you because there's a lot of people who would love that collection of books that you have got behind you you've got two shelves of books there one is cricket and one yes. is football history just tell people what you've got behind you John because they are just such information there <laughs> you'll be familiar with the yellow wisdom cricketers almanac which has been going since the the mid 19th century and i've got i think every edition going back to 1963 so before i was born um so that's on the top shelf and and uh, it's just making its way into the second shelf of my my um shelving behind the the desk but I, I think the thing that you probably more pertinently refer to is the entire collection of the rothman's football yearbook or as yeah. it now is the utilita football yearbook and whilst that doesn't quite um, trip off the tongue in the way that Rothmans did. I'm just grateful 
the utility that we still we still have a version of what was the Rothmans football yearbook. So the blue covers going all the way back to 1970 when it when it started, and they're all very well thumbed yeah. because even in this internet age, they they're still a, a vital resource for someone that does what I do. Yeah, John. Your voice is unmistakable to so many people. Thank you very much for painting pictures for people when we're listening on the radio and for continuing that great work on, on TV for us. I really appreciate you coming on today and going through your career. It's been a real pleasure to have you on, and I thank you very much for that. Lovely to chat and to reminisce, Gary. Thank you very much for the invitation. All right. Take care, and um, we'll all be listening, um, I'm sure, in the future when you appear on our... Well, you don't appear on our screens. Your voice <laughs> appears on our screens. All the best to you, John. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Thanks again to John Champion for being our guest this week. I could listen to him all day. What a voice. Okay. Well, we've listened to John's voice. This is the end of me because that's all for this episode. So I'll see you next time. Don't forget, subscribe, give us a five-star review, and I'll see you again next time. The podcast is out for episode 11. Thanks again. Take care. Bye.